Thanks for tuning in and making Res Life a part of your day. Whether this is your first time listening or this is a part of your weekly rhythm, we are glad you're here. If you'd like to connect more throughout the week, check us out at reslife.org, download our app, or follow us on social media. It's time for today's message, so let's dive in. Here we are, just going into the new year, just coming out of the holidays. And this actually is the number one time of the year when people fight depression. And it may be that there's a number of reasons. I think, first of all, people look back at their year and so much did not happen that they were hoping was going to happen. And sometimes there's been loss during that year. And you really see it when family gets together. And then there's the part of family getting together with somebody you didn't want to see, you know, some issues you didn't want to deal with. But there's just so many things that that contribute to depression. So I thought I would take two weeks and talk about how to have victory over depression, what the Bible has to say about it, right? Now, I wanted to start with uh, Elijah. Now, he is actually one of the big four. Uh, As you read your Old Testament, there are four, like, monsters that show up. The first one is Abraham, who had a covenant with God, the friend of God, the father of the faith. Secondly, there's Moses, the lawgiver. There's David, the king. And then there's Elijah, the prophet. Right. And uh, he is the man who called Israel back to God. In fact, the Bible goes through a great amount of detail about his ministry once he shows up and about his protege, Elisha. So I want to start in the New Testament, in the book of James, with James chapter 5 and verse 17, talking about Elijah the prophet. It says, Elijah was a human being with a nature such as we have, with feelings, affections, and a constitution like ours. Now, when we read the Bible, we tend to look at the people that are in the Bible, and we just think, well, like they're superheroes. They're God's pets, you know? It's like they were perfect. They never had any problems. They never fought depression, anxiety, or fear. They were just always happy, right? No temptations, no trials. Well, that is absolutely not the case, right? And the Bible is letting us know that this prophet who's anointed by God had feelings, affections, and a constitution just like yours. There was no difference. And he went through a time in his life where he went through extreme depression and was actually suicidal. And God had to literally redirect him and get him back on the right path. But then it goes on and it says, and he prayed earnestly for it not to rain. And no rain fell on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again and the heavens supplied rain and the land produce crops as usual. So we we find this prophet showing up in 1 Kings chapter 17 and really 18. But I I just want to kind of give you the backdrop, right? We we don't know really anything about his, his, uh, how would you say this, his childhood. He literally shows up at the king's palace one day and he walks in and he says, Ahab, you and your family have turned away from God and there will be no rain and there will be no dew until I say so. Well, 
Ahab thinks, this guy's nuts. You know, his elevator's not going all the way up. And they literally let him walk out. But you know what? Next week, there's no rain. There's no dew. The next week, no rain, no dew. Month after month after month. And finally, the king realizes, I don't know what's going on, but we got to find this guy. And the Bible says he sent to every nation in trying to find him. They can't find him. But what has happened is God's hidden him. God told him, hey, go by the brook cherub. He said, because I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. Now, where were they going to feed him? At the brook. Right? Now, there was provision for him at the brook. If he had gone someplace else, there's no provision. Right? And it's really important sometimes that you and I recognize that God has a place of provision for you. Right? And you've got to be in the place. He couldn't just go any place he wanted. He had to go there. So literally, I think like the ravens, they, they, stop, they stop by Burger King every morning, every night. Because bread and meat, that sounds like a whopper to me. Right? I don't know where the ketchup came from, but it probably showed up too, you know. So he's there by the brook. And God's taking care of him supernaturally. But there's no rain and the brook dries up. And God said to him, hey, I want you to go to the city of Seraphat. He said, because I've commanded a widow woman to provide for you there. He's got to go there again. So he gets there. And sure enough, there's a widow woman. But uh, she's not a rich widow. In fact, she's gathering some sticks. And, and he says, uh, would, would you please get me some water? And she said, yeah. And as she's going, he says, and, and uh, would you make me a little cake and bring that to me? And she says, as the Lord your God lives, she says, all I have is a handful of flour and a little bit of oil in the bottom of a jar. And I'm going to go make a little cake for my son and a little cake for myself. And we're going to eat them and we're going to die. Well, the prophet said, go make one for yourself and for your son. But first, make one for me and bring it here. How many of you are glad that 60 minutes was not there? <laughs> Prophet takes widow's last meal. And then he said, because this is what the Lord says. He said, that jar of oil will keep on pouring and there will continue to be flour in your bin until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. And the Bible says she went away and she did as he said, and she ate. And her son ate and the prophet ate until the Lord sent rain on the earth. And in the meantime, her young son dies and the prophet raises him from the dead. You know, so he's had the uh, the ravens feeding him. He's had supernatural provision. Somebody's been raised from the dead. He said there's going to be no rain or dew and there's no rain and there's no dew for three and a half years. And then God says, go show yourself to that wicked king, Ahab, and call everybody to Mount Carmel and have a contest. So he says to Ahab, have all your prophets, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 800 pro 400 prophets of Asherah, come and, and prepare an offering. And I'll prepare an offering. And the God who answers by fire, he's God. Nobody can light the fire the sacrifice. Let God light it. 
So the 450 prophets of Baal, they're out there and they got their sacrifice and they're screaming and they're dancing. And the Bible says they're cutting themselves and they're calling on God. And, and Elijah's having a good time. He says, hey, louder. He might be asleep. Hey, keep going. Maybe he's on vacation. Now, they say in the original, he actually said, oh, maybe he's using the outhouse. Give him chip. Keep it up. Keep it up. Nothing happens. And then he goes over and he prays and fire falls from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, the altar. All the people fall down. The Lord's God, the Lord's God. He grabs the, the false prophets. He kills the false prophets. He goes up on top of the hill. He starts praying and the rain starts to come. The Bible says that the king is taking his chariot back to Jezreel. The spirit of the Lord comes on the prophet and he outruns the king's chariot for 18 miles. How many of you think like he's on a roll? All right. And then this is what the Bible says. Then Ahab, that's the bad king, told Jezebel, that's the wicked lady, all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life like the one of them by this time about tomorrow. And when he saw that, if you've got a Bible, you need to underline that. And when he saw that, he arose, he ran for his life, went to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. Then he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. So he comes off this tremendous victory that has just been growing. And the, the, the wicked queen says, I'm going to kill you. And the Bible says, when he saw that, he began to, to see on the inside. He began to meditate on what she had said. He began to have anxiety and worry and literally goes into depression. You know, when we have wrong thinking, right, we will have wrong emotions. And wrong feelings, wrong emotions lead to wrong reaction, which leads to wrong living. Right? And again, he's had this great victory. But when he changes what he's thinking about, right? when he changes his thoughts, suddenly a depression hits him and he gets so depressed that in 24 hours he's suicidal and he's saying, God, just kill me. You know, there've been a lot of different studies about depression. Uh, one particular one that, that I read mentioned that they felt were some of the main causes of depression. They said a disconnection from meaningful relationships, a disconnection from our personal values. Our values are one way we're living another. Okay. A disconnection caused by childhood trauma, a disconnection from our self-worth and self-respect. Again, we're not living the way that we know we should live. A disconnection from the natural world, literally living in a fantasy world. Um, 
And by the way, we are living in a society that's just probably never had as much of this. Right? You know what television really does? They create a crisis. Right? In 30 minutes, they're going to create a crisis. And they're going to have a hero or a heroine who's going to solve that crisis, who you identify with. And then during that 30 minutes, the crisis gets solved. And you go, ah, we accomplished something. No, you didn't accomplish anything, right? You have disconnected from the natural, from the real world. Also a disconnection from a better future and a disconnection, it says, in body and brain. And it's really talking about sickness and pain, right? They're talking about those as the main reasons why people end up depressed. And again, uh, they, they tell us this time of the year, as many as 30% of people are dealing with some depth of, of depression in their life. So I want to talk about Bible answers to depression. And then next week, we're going to really take a deep dive into this prophet, Elijah. What happened to him and what did God do to break him out of his depression? All right. But first of all, uh, let me just say this, that thankfulness or gratitude is the greatest mental health agent on the planet. Gratitude, right? It's the key. It is a tremendous key to overcoming depression. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, in everything, give thanks. Not for everything, but in everything. How many of you know there's things that happen in your life that God did not send your way? Right? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy First Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Now, God didn't send everything, but no matter what you're going through, be thankful. Be thankful. What should I be thankful for? You're saved. You're forgiven. You're on your way to heaven. You're redeemed. You're a part of the family of God. You've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. There's a lot of things you can be thankful for. Right? So in Romans chapter one, by the way, in everything gives thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I've had people say, well, I don't know what the will of God is right. Here's where you start. Be thankful. And again, thankfulness is not a, a natural attribute for, for most people. When Jesus healed 10 lepers, how many came back and just said, thank you. One out of 10. I think it would do every one of us good to write down 20 things that we're thankful for and to thank God every day. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But in Romans 1, verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, nor were thankful. Here's the result became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they become fools. Now, what's, what's the root cause here? It's not glorifying God and it's not being thankful to God. And it says you become futile in your thoughts and your heart is darkened. We are living in the, in, we are living in the age that Isaiah prophesied about. This is what he said. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, 
who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Let me realize we are living in a day when people call evil good and good evil. They call darkness light and light darkness. What is the antidote? Thankfulness. Thankfulness. When we do not, when we're not thankful, right, our thoughts become futile and our hearts darken. Literally, we no longer can even tell right from wrong. Right? And again, thankfulness is the greatest mental health agent, period. Right? And thankfulness connects us to God. It connects us to God. Right? Uh, in, in Deuteronomy 8, God said this to the children of Israel. He's going to bring them into the promised land. He says, and, and when you've eaten and are full, and if you've, you've built beautiful houses and you dwell in them, and your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will be lifted up and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Then you'll say in your heart, my power in the might of my hand has gained me this wealth. God says, when you get blessed, you just tend to think it's you, that you're the one, that you're responsible. I did this. But this is what God said. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power, the ability, the giftedness, the acumen, the connections, the favor to get wealth as he swore to your fathers, even as it is this day, that he can establish his covenant as he swore to your fathers. You say, well, I, I did that. Listen, it's God that put it on the inside of you. God put it on the inside. He said, I'm the one who gave you those gifts, those talents, that ability, right? Now, I would say this. Well, let me, let me just keep going here. What, what we live in today is we live in a society that literally feeds envy in people. And when you're envious, you're not thankful for what you have. You're just focusing on what you don't have. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, it says, if there's first a willing mind, it's accepted according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. So here's what it's saying. When it comes to God, we say, God, I know that you've been good to me, but you know what? I don't have this and I don't have this and I don't have this and I want one of these and I want one of these and I want to go over here. So instead of being thankful for what God has done, we penalize God for what we don't have, right? Now, this literally is one of the big 10, right? Envy and covetousness are are basically synonymous, right? And God says in the 10 commandments, thou shalt not covet. You shall not covet. And, And by the way, our culture today in America is, is, it's almost built in, right? Where the government takes from producers to give to non-producers. Right? And non-producers are mad if they don't get what somebody else produced. I thought that'd go over about like that, but I just thought I'd tell you anyway. All right. Now, an- another thing that keeps us from being thankful, all right, is comparison. Now, here's how it's, it's talked about in, uh, in the 2 Corinthians. 
It says, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. For they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Right? So it says, when you compare to other people, you're not wise. It's always a lose-lose situation every time. Right? Now, how can you say this? Every single person has equal value. You know that, right? Every person has equal value. But how many of you know we don't all have equal ability? So the Bible says it like this, 1 Corinthians, Matthew 25. It says, to one he gave five talents, to one he gave two talents, to one he gave one talent, each according to his ability. Some had a five-talent ability, some had a two-talent ability, some had a one-talent ability. Everybody has gifts. Everybody has talents. All right. But not everybody has the same talents. All right. So so my, my granddaughter, Indy, uh, she's just like the most flexible thing I've ever seen. All right. I think we have a do we have a picture of her. Look at that. Do you see what she's doing? It hurts. I just watch her. I'm in the background there. You, they, she'll see my mouth. I'm like, I mean, she, it hurts. Uh, I've never touched my toes in my life. All right. Jeannie's aunt is 101 years old and she still puts the palms of her hands on the floor. Now they have abilities. I don't have, like I said, I've never touched my toes. All right. Uh, I I used to be six foot two. I shrunk. I'm like six one now. All right. But you know what? I've never touched. I, I love basketball. Used to play a lot. I never touched the rim in my life. <laughs> Not one time. All right. You say, why? It just wasn't an ability I have. Right? And because of that, it would not have mattered if I had practiced basketball 10 hours a day. I'd have never been any good at it. All right. Because it just wasn't a natural ability that I had. So the Bible says when we compare ourselves among ourselves, and we measure ourselves based on ourselves. It says, we are not wise. So here's how it works. You take your weakness and you compare it to somebody else's strength and you get depressed. Or you take your strength and compare it to somebody else's weakness and you think you're hot stuff. And you know, man, no matter what you do, you're not wise, right? You lose no matter what you do. The Bible says, don't compare yourself to somebody else, your abilities. Don't compare what you have to somebody else, what somebody else has, right? The Bible says, do not covet, right? Not their abilities, not their possessions. It says, not their spouse. Don't covet. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy, covetousness rots the bones, And when we compare ourselves, we always lose. Jesus said this, really dealing with the same subject in Luke chapter 12. He said, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now, we live in a world that literally believes that if you have more, you have more value. 
You're more significant. You're more important if you have more. I I haven't seen it lately, but years ago, I saw that bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys win. Anybody else ever seen that bumper sticker? Yeah. Hey, he who dies with the most toys is dead. They don't win. They're just dead, right? And when we look at what we don't have in our lives, we're never satisfied, right? And what we do have when we look at what we don't have is never enough. Ecclesiastes 5 says, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, right? And he who loves abundance with increase. If you love abundance, you won't be satisfied, right? Now, the great prophet, Jim Carrey, said this. (laughs) He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they would see that it is not the answer. I thought that was pretty good. That's pretty good. Isn't it amazing? Some of the wealthiest people, the most famous people that you could think of commit suicide and and, and have tremendous bouts with depression. Um, I better skip some stuff here and just jump over to Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3. It says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. How many would like to have perfect peace? God says this is available. He said, you'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind. Remember what caused problems for Elijah? He started to think about what that wicked lady Jezebel said. I'm going to kill you. And when he did, his emotions went crazy, his feelings went crazy, and he ended up in a funk of depression. But you'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Now, the, the, the Hebrew word there is the word yester, right? whose mind. The, the, the first meaning of yester is conception. Right? It's conception. Its second meaning is imagination. Right? Now, really what it's talking about is it's talking about meditation, right? So you, you, get your, you, you get the promises of God, the word of God, and you keep your mind focused on what God has told you, about who God says you are, about what God says you, can, you have, about who God says that you are, right? And you stay focused on God's promises, right? In your imagination, you keep focusing on that. You're meditating on that. You say, uh, how, does it, how does it work? Well, well, Jesus told us the kingdom of God is like a farmer who sows a seed. Right? God's word is like a seed. Right? It gets sown in your heart, in your imagination. You begin to imagine. You begin to see the word of God. You begin to see that you are who God says you are. That you can do what God says you can do. That you have the authority that God says that you have. Right? And you begin to do that, and you, can, you literally conceive. Miracles do not just happen. Miracles are conceived. They're conceived. Right? Where? Well, it starts in your mind. It starts in your heart. It starts as you are meditating. So, so let's just take an example. In Mark chapter 5, we have a woman with an issue of blood for 12 years. She hears about Jesus. She comes up behind Jesus, and she is saying, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be made whole. The Bible says she touches his garment and Jesus turns around 
and says, who touched me? And the disciples said, well, look, a multitude's touching you. And Jesus said, no, 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 somebody touched me. He said, because I felt power go out of me. And that woman knew immediately that she was healed. She felt that power go into her. So she comes by, by, and she says, it's me. And Jesus said, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you whole. Now, when you meditate on that, there's different ways you can meditate on that. You can see yourself like the woman coming to Jesus, right? He's, he, he loves you. He wants you well. He's provided for your healing. And you can see yourself coming to Jesus to be healed. You meditate on that, right? Or you can see yourself as Jesus. I thought that'd go over like that. Jesus said, the works that I do, will you do also? And even greater works than these will you do. You can see yourself as laying hands on the sick and seeing them recover. You can see yourself talking to sickness and disease and seeing it leave and that person get up whole and well, right? But he'll keep you in perfect peace when your mind, right, your imagination your conception. Again, miracles don't just happen. You, you don't just get delivered. You don't just get healed, right? You conceive a healing. You conceive a deliverance, right? It's something that happens on the inside of you. You see it on the inside first, right? He said, but I will keep him in perfect peace, right? When your mind, your imagination, your thoughts are focused on him. So what happened to Elijah? He let his thoughts be focused on what Jezebel said, right? It created anxiety. It created fear. It created depression. And literally he retreats from the job that God has for him, right? Now in Philippians 4 verse 8, it says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Second Corinthians 10, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now, you may have never thought about it, but the moment you became a Christian, you entered into warfare. All right? People call this spiritual warfare. And, and I think that's a good name for it, but I want, you, want to describe it for you here. For the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but they're mighty through God. For the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So where does spiritual warfare take place? In our thoughts in our mind. And when we have a thought that is contrary to God's word, contrary to God's thoughts about us, we need to cast that thought down. We need to keep our mind focused on God's word, on his promises, on what he says about you. Do you know when you're in God's word, you're going to see yourself as victorious. You're going to see yourself forgiven. You're going to see yourself anointed. You're going to see yourself with authority. You're going to see yourself healed, delivered with righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. 
You're going to see yourself as the head and not the tail, above and not beneath, blessed in the city, blessed in the country, blessed going in, blessed going out. You're going to see yourself as an overcomer. The Bible says God made you to be a priest and a king to God the Father, washed in the blood, redeemed, translated out of the kingdom of darkness, and qualified for every blessing that Jesus purchased for you. That's who you'll see yourself to be when your mind is stayed on him. Say, would you bow your heads for just a moment? You know, we often talk about how the Bible has the answers for life, and it really does have the answers. But the Bible not only has the answers, the Bible has the right questions, the most important questions. Here's one. What is your life? And if I were to ask different people today, right here, we would get different answers. I know somebody would say, well, my life's my family. And somebody else would say, well, my life's a wreck. Somebody else might say my life is happy. Somebody would say my life's my job. Somebody would say it seems like my life's going nowhere. Somebody else would say my life is going somewhere. But the Bible answers the question, and this is what it says. It says your life is like a vapor which is here for a moment, and it's gone. If you stepped outside this morning and you breathed, you saw your breath for what, six, eight, ten seconds, and it was gone. The Bible says in light of eternity, the years that you're going to spend on earth are just like that vapor. It's just here, and then it's gone. The next question, what will the end be? The, the Bible makes it very clear that there is, there is an end and there is a judgment day. And there are those that are going to spend eternity separated from God, those that are going to spend eternity in his presence. There really is a heaven to gain and a hell to lose. Another great question. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? The answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. What really happens is this. Well, the apostle Paul said this. He said, we beg you in Christ's place to be reconciled to God. And I tell you, if you're not right with God today, I beg you to be reconciled to God. You say, what does it mean? What do I need to do? You need to turn away from your old life. Stop living to please yourself. The things that you know are wrong, stop doing those things. And receive Jesus. Receive him as your king, as your Lord, as your Savior. And when you do, the Bible says God washes you in the blood. And your, your past is gone. You're right with God. You're on your way to heaven. So we're going to pray a prayer right now. And we're going to call on the name of the Lord the way the Bible shows us to. And if you will pray this prayer from your heart, when we say amen, you're going to be right with God. So I'm going to ask everybody, bow your head. I'm going to ask you to repeat this prayer, but make these words your own. Pray these words from your heart. Say, oh God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe his blood paid for my sins. And I believe he rose again. Victorious over death, over sin, and over the devil. And I give Jesus all of my heart and all of my life. I'm going to live for him. 
I'm turning my back on my old life. I'm not living for myself. I receive Jesus as my King, as my Lord, and my Savior. And I thank you. You've heard my prayer. And my past is gone. And I'm a part of your kingdom today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. For more information, if you're in need of prayer or just want to connect with the community, go to reslife.org, follow us on social media, or email us anytime at reslife at reslife.org. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you again soon.